Travis tells me that this is joke-worthy for the Sunday morning crowd. I don't know. I'm looking at my wife. Is it, honey? It's okay? So, just because some of those singles like it doesn't mean it's worthy of you. you. You guys are all upscale. You know what I mean? Anyway, let's just, I, I read this, okay? Somebody gave it to me, actually. One teacher asked my favorite, who, uh, what my favorite animal was, and I said, fried chicken. The teacher said I wasn't funny. But she couldn't have been right because everyone else laughed. My parents told me to always tell the truth, and I did. Fried chicken is my favorite animal. I told my dad what happened, and he said my teacher was probably a member of PETA. He said they love animals very much. Well, I do too, especially chicken. Pork, beef, all of it. Anyway, my teacher sent me to the principal's office. I told him what happened, and he laughed too. Then he told me not to do it again. The next day in class, my teacher asked me what my favorite live animal was. I told her it was chicken. She asked me why. 
So I told her it was because you can make them into fried chicken. <laughs> she sent me back to the principal's office. Well, he laughed. He told me not to do it again. I just don't understand. My parents taught me to be honest, but my teacher doesn't like it when I am. Today, my teacher asked me to tell her what famous person I admired most. I told her, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Guess where I am now? <laughs> He's in the principal's office, amen? Take your Bible, if you would, turn over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. That boy must be Baptist. Fried chicken. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. We're going to read just two verses today and just uh, make an application, a couple of applications. Let's go ahead and look at that particular passage. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 28. The Bible simply says, And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Again, it says simply this. He saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. We're asking, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts today, that, Lord, you'd move in our lives. May we be encouraged, Father, from your word today. Now, Father, help us. And, Lord, if there be any that are without Jesus Christ, have never personally invited him into their life as Savior and Lord, they would do so today. And, Lord, if there be a believer that has been on the fringe, may they, Father, make their way closer to you and draw nigh to you by surrendering their life wholeheartedly, re Submitting themselves all over again. Surrendering themselves all over again. Lord, help us today to leave here different than we came. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus has been baptized at this point, And he has already been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights by Satan. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ would come out victoriously. Without a doubt, he would... Utilized the Word of God. He would present the Word of God and he came out victorious. His earthly ministry is in motion now. And he can be found traveling about and enlisting disciples here. And this is where we meet up with the Master here in the passage. The Bible tells us, is there somebody, is, is there voices coming from that back room? Would you go out there please and tell them to be quiet please? If I can hear it here, folks, it is distracting. I'm sorry. I, there should not be talking going on in that back room. Unless there's somebody being held up with the offering and we have a gun at someone's head. There should be no noise in that back room. I'm sorry. Thank you. All right. So, nonetheless, the Bible tells us in this particular case that Jesus Christ now is traveling about and he is enlisting his disciples. And that's where he meets up with the Master. And it tells us that he saw a publican, an interesting statement, an interesting phrase. The publican was probably the least respected member of society at that time. And again, he was a Jew, yes, but he went to work for the Roman government. 
He was a tax collector on behalf of the Roman government. He was viewed by the Jewish people as a traitor. These publicans regularly overcharged whenever they had an opportunity. They were not the most moral men, if you will. They would bring false accusations and charges of smuggling in order to extort hush money, to keep people quiet. They detained and they would open letters just on mere suspicion, trying to find a reason to somehow get more money out of people. It was the most, I guess, basis job or livelihood. And yet it was a lucrative livelihood. They were to make much money in this job of collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. They collected the taxes of the Jews, mind you, for the Roman government. It wasn't collecting taxes from Romans, but from Jews. And so, they were not well liked. They were working for the heathen Gentiles. And that was not something that went over well with the Jewish people. And so, it made them the traitors of the worst kind. Levi or Matthew, as he's called in the New Testament, was one such man. This Matthew that we're referring to here, Levi, he would ultimately become one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, we know. And that is the account that we are reading about even here. When he's approached by Jesus, when he is called to follow, when he is asked to leave all, the Bible says that he left all, rose up, and followed him. Now, I don't know whether or not you and I can possibly imagine the magnitude of this decision, that we can appreciate it. I mean, it would seem like, well, that's no big deal. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to him and, and asks him to leave all, to rise up and follow him. Now, may I say, first of all, we're looking in hindsight to this situation. From our perspective and our vantage point, we understand that Jesus Christ is more than a mere man. We understand that he was indeed the Messiah who was promised to come, that he was God in flesh who would walk the face of the earth. He was Emmanuel, God with us. We know that now. But whenever he came originally, there was many questions and much doubt and there were many, uh, 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 much uh, apprehension about who this Jesus was and what he was really about. Was he just a mere man? Was he a rabbi? Was he just a great shepherd? Was it, who was he? What was he? What was he all about? Here he comes to Levi now and he says to him, listen Levi, I understand you're a tax collector on behalf of the Roman government. I realize that you have a very lucrative business. I realize that you have a nice home and you have probably a family. And I just want you to now, right now where you're at, Get up, leave everything, and follow me. That might not have been as easy as it sounds today. I mean, if Jesus showed up on earth today and you happened to be at your work and he said, you know, rise up and leave all, you'd say, well, of course, that means God's telling me to do that. But remember, Levi. Levi was just around when Jesus had come on the scene. And so Jesus would go on to prove himself to be the God that he claimed to be. Not only that, but I would imagine that the first feelings that Levi had was probably bewilderment, don't you? In one sense, he might have thought, why me, you know? Me of all people. Even if he had an idea that Jesus was indeed Messiah, even if he was convinced of it in his mind, why me? I mean, I am a publican. I am public enemy number one. Why would you want me to travel with you? Why would you want me to leave Hall and follow you? Why me? 
Are you positive, Jesus? Are you sure? I'm a criminal. I'm an enemy of the people. Surely there has to be a better candidate. Or he possibly thought to himself, what will this new life hold for me? What what will it hold for me? I mean, what kind of livelihood will I have following Jesus? I mean, this is the man who was born in a stable. This is Jesus who grew up in a carpenter's house. This is Jesus who has nothing to his name, so to speak, at least on the earth. Oh, he may have owned the stars in the heavens, but as far as mankind was concerned, he was a pauper. And here is this well-to-do, more than likely very rich man, or at least very comfortable man, being told to leave his livelihood and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it mean to follow Jesus? Wow. I mean, what uncertainty would, be, would he face? And then possibly he thought this. He might have thought to himself when asked, he might have thought, huh, what will my family think? I mean, I have people depending on me. I mean, I'm providing for them and I'm meeting their needs. And now all of a sudden, this Jesus comes along and and he simply cries out and says to me, you know, follow me. And I just get up and I I, I rise up and I follow him. And and what are they going to do? And how's it going to affect my family? And what will my parents think? What will my wife think? What will my children think? What will my, my, my relatives and those around me think? What would they say? But you know what? The Bible says that after he considered all of it, and I'm sure he had some thoughts in his mind the moment Jesus said, follow me. In spite of it all, he left all, the Bible says. He rose up, the Bible says, and he followed Jesus. Levi, or Matthew, as he's often called, simply left all. He left everything and followed Jesus. And I want to share just three simple thoughts that I believe each of us must understand when we come to Jesus. First of all, number one, you can't bargain with God. You can't bargain with God. Let's say that we're going to purchase a piece of property. We've done that a few times. We'll bargain with the seller. You know, he has something that he wants. That, 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 you know, he has something that, that the, the buyer wants, and that's the property. And of course, you know, we have something that the buyer, that the seller wants, and that's called money. So we make an offer, and, 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 uh, and, and we, we submit it to the seller. The seller, he, Or she will consider the offer and then decide whether or not they want to accept that particular offer. They may accept it. They may not accept that offer. They may even possibly counter that offer. Instead of accepting what we've offered them, they may come down and say, well, if you'll give me this, then I'll sell you the property. Then we take that offer and we review it. We consider it. We we may take the offer. We may reject the offer. We may make a counter offer. 
And this bargaining takes place for this piece of property. How much it will cost. What we're willing to pay. Again, it's called bargaining. Bargaining takes place when two parties have something to offer each other. By definition, you and I cannot bargain with God. You want to know why? Because we have nothing to offer Him. Nothing at all to offer God. It is amazing, it's an amazing thing to watch as believers try to bargain with God or the lost try to bargain with God. Well, I'll trust you and I'll receive you if you'll allow me to continue in this sin or I'll, I'll trust you and receive you or I'll, I'll follow you if you'll let me have this or do this or if you'll just let me stay here and serve here, I'll gladly serve. But don't ask me to go there and don't ask me to go here. Almost as if we can bargain with God like we have some kind of leverage. We have no leverage. We have nothing to bargain with God. We are simply sinners in the sight of a holy, righteous God before we come to Him in salvation. We have nothing good to give Him in and of ourselves. And even after we're saved, the truth is is that we are bought with a price. (laughs) Therefore, we are to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. This is not mine to bargain with God with. This is already His purchased possession. But many times in the lost mind, we come to God and we somehow think we can offer God something. I'll I'll receive you. I'll accept you. I'll serve you. I'll do for you if. There's no bargaining with God. God, by the way, hates sin. And that's exactly what we are, sinners in our hearts. And that sin taints every aspect of our life. Oh, He loves us as individuals, but He understands and recognizes our sin. And our sin makes everything we do, the Bible says, tainted. It says in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9. And let's turn there, if you would, please. Jeremiah 17, The Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, I'll guarantee you God does. God knows it. Can you imagine if one of your children comes to you, and again, with children it's a little bit different, but you come and he brings you a a candy bar made of mud. Now listen, he's going to ask you to buy that candy bar from you. Now listen, as a parent, you're going to go, oh, I'll take it and I'll buy it. Will you eat it? In reality, in that case, he has nothing to bargain with. He has nothing to sell you that you really want. You're just being kind at that point. And God is so kind to us. So many times, he does for us when we don't deserve. He gives when we don't deserve. He shares when we don't deserve. He is forever a God of love and of care and of of concern and giving. But I don't know about you, but just because 12 kids stand on the side of the road and offer me mud candy bars, I don't think I'm going to go by every day and pay them for mud candy bars. And you know, the lost person is trying, if they're not careful, they're taking a life of sin and saying, God, now let's bargain with this. You want this right here? What, a mud candy bar? 
You want this, you're going to pay. You keep your mud candy bar. I mean, isn't that really what we're dealing with here? I mean, what do we have to offer a holy God? Nothing. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy in the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. The Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God doesn't appreciate our heart. He doesn't appreciate our attitude. He loves us as a person, but He hates our sin. We have nothing to offer God. He has to what? Fully and completely transform us at salvation anyway. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Why? Because he can't take us as we are. He changes us. The moment we receive him and accept him by faith, he makes us a new creature. Why? Because the old creature is unacceptable in the sight of a holy God. We have nothing to offer him. He has begun a good work in us and will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. He begins that work the day we put our faith in him. And he continues to perform a work in our life from that moment on. Why? Because he cannot look at our sin. He cannot function and deal with us as we are. He wants to transform and change us into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all going out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. What do we have to offer God then if we can't even do any good? And I understand that in the world, as we look at things from a world perspective, we could say, well, they're a very benevolent person. They're a very giving person. Those are good things, good traits and good qualities, yes. But in the sight of a holy God that is perfect, we have nothing good to offer God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Bible says. The very best we can offer God is tainted with that filthy oil of those, those mechanic rags. Have you ever been in a, 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 a shop where they're working on engines? And I don't know, maybe some of you fellows have worked on a car before, you've worked on your engine somehow, whether it be a, a mower or a car or whatever, and you use those rags and you wipe off that grease and you go ahead and you try to use that rag again and it smears the grease everywhere. Isn't that fun? That's what you and I are on the side of a holy God. The best works, I've said, the best work we can do, that's how he sees our best works, like a filthy rag. The best we can do in this flesh of ours is spread the sin around. That's not a very positive message, is it? But may I say we have a very positive God. He's a good God. And fortunately for us, he didn't leave it that way. Listen, there was nothing good about Matthew that day. He was a publican. He was public enemy number one, if you will, in the eyes of the Jewish people. But may I say in the eyes of Jesus Christ, he was somebody worth reaching out to. He left all, rose up, and followed him. The question is today in your life, are you willing to leave all, rise up, and follow him? In the word of God, Jesus Christ is calling. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, what's he eventually say? I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. He's calling to you. What are you going to do about that? You say, well, I, I just don't know. I, I'm afraid of what my family would think. I'm afraid of, of what the, how it will affect my life. I'm afraid of how it will affect my livelihood. 
He left all, rose up, and followed him. You know what? That'd be the best thing you could ever do. Not only that, number two, you can't bargain with God, but number two, you can't add Christ to your list of gods. You can't add Christ to your list of gods. Let's suppose that a young fellow approaches a young lady and he asks her to marry him. And, I mean, she is a dream boat. Well, he's the dream boat and she's the beauty. They, they talk about me. I remember them calling me dream boat all the time. But anyway, I, you know, so you know, here they are, the two of them. And he shares his dreams with her of growing old together. Sharing a lifetime of love and happiness. In the excitement of the moment, he finally says, let's set a date. She says, yes, dear. He, she pulls out her daily planner. He suggests Saturday, a Saturday in June, a wonderful summer wedding. She says, well, that would work. Uh, but I'm going bike riding with my friends that morning. Uh, he looks a little puzzled. He can't quite understand, but he thinks, well, okay, okay, I'll tell you what, let me suggest another Saturday. She checks her calendar again, and, well, you just won't believe this, but I'm booked that weekend too. I have a softball game with my friends. He's getting a little bit upset, but he thinks to himself, now hold on, don't get too mad. I mean, she is extremely impressive and just very wonderful young lady. He turns and he says, okay, okay, I'll tell you what. Saturday seem extremely booked up for you, so I'll tell you what. Let's have a Friday night wedding in July. How about the second Friday night in July? She looks at her planner. Nope, that won't work either. I have a date with Ben that evening. (laughs) Now, we all know that that wouldn't fly too well with that young man, would it? Matter of fact, you couldn't pay me enough to marry that particular young lady. I don't care how beautiful she was. I'm not marrying that one. And you want to know something? You fellows in here, you would have to agree with me. There's no way in the world. And by the way, ladies, if that was the kind of guy that you were dealing with, you know, the kind of guy when you go out to dinner and all he can do is text or stay on his phone all the time, and you still marry him, and then you wonder why you're miserable the rest of your life, don't marry a guy that can't give you his full attention when you're dating. I promise you he won't do it after you're married then. And so I'd throw that in, good measure. You know, you see some of these commercials every once in a while nowadays, you know, and they're, they're all texting on their phone. Hey, if, by the way, if, can I give you all just a piece of advice? And again, this has nothing to do with the message. When you go out with your family, if you're going to go out to dinner with your family, why don't you stay off your phones? Why don't we just silence our phones? Why don't we just not even put them on vibrate? Why don't we just spend a little time with the people that are with us instead of the ones that don't have time to be with us? I'm sorry, but I'm telling you, we are destroying the home today. We're destroying marriages and families because we are so connected to everything and everyone that doesn't even care about us. Do you know there's not one person in this room that loves me more than that woman right there? And when I'm with her at dinner, the truth is, I don't care what you have to say for a moment. I'm looking at her and I'm having dinner with her. She's more important to me because, listen, if she's not in my life, 
you can't make me happy. And I better make sure I keep taking good care of that right there. And I've got some children, just like you do probably. And if you don't, maybe God will give them to you one day. But the fact is, is that you better let them know they're important to you. So important that other people and other things don't always get in the way. There are emergencies, I understand. I realize all of that. Me as a pastor, of all people, know this. But let me tell you something. They better know in their heart they're number one. And this is not getting it done at dinner all the time. Please, please do not throw away your wonderful opportunity to fellowship with your family intimately over a stupid cell phone. Don't do it. Get rid of those. Don't let your kids bring their phones to the table. And by the way, personally, if they weren't 18 or over, I wouldn't let them have one. But that's what I do. You do what you want. And if they were on having a phone, it would be a flip phone so they didn't have access to the Internet. They couldn't be viewing pornography at the age of 11, like most children do now, according to the statistics. Just thought I'd throw that in, too. I'm a little bit concerned about that. We wonder why that's on the rise today and why our families are falling apart and why our children are so messed up in the head. It's because they're seeing things they shouldn't see as little kids. But but the preacher don't know nothing. He's an old fuddy-duddy. Nonetheless, I just thought I'd help you a little bit there. So anyway, this young lady, this young man, this young lady here, uh, this ain't going to work out. Why? They're sharing things with one another. They're, they're, they're trying to include other people into this relationship, bring other people into the relationship. They act as though God should be happy to have them. So happy that they come to him with divided interests. That's a problem. Listen, I want you in my life, God, but I also want some other gods in my life. It's not going to work that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Turn there if you would, please. It's an interesting thing to me how people are very welcome to religion to some degree. They want to be spiritual, but they don't want anything practical that cramps their style. It's funny how that is, isn't it? Well, I don't mind. Church, it's okay as long as they don't try to tell me how to live. And God's good for me as long as God doesn't try to tell me how to live. And the Word of God's wonderful unless it tries to tell me how to live. I'm going to tell you something. we got a God in heaven that's a little more interested in you maybe than you are in Him. And He wants to give you literally the X's and O's, how to live your life and be prosperous and to sooner or later be victorious in your life. If you're struggling now, He wants to give you victory. But you can't do it, as we're going to find out in just a moment, our own way. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I am, a jealous, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul the Apostle is speaking. And he's just the man of God. And he's talking to the people here in the church at Corinth. He's saying, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Let me tell you something. There is no one more jealous than God over us, though. If Paul the Apostle is that jealous over those, and he wants to present us, as he says here, um, uh, as a chaste virgin to Christ, Pure and holy in the sight of God. Let me tell you, no one wants that more than Jesus Christ does. And Jesus is not one to want to share you with Satan. He doesn't want to share you with others. He wants all of your loyalty. He wants all of your allegiance. He wants all of you. Think about how wonderful that is, though. Remember when you met that guy or gal? And all you wanted was for them to want you only. If only I could be enough in their life. If only I would do. 
If only I could be everything to them and they would say, you're the only man for me. You're the only woman for me. I would be so happy. What an honor it would be. Can I tell you, that's exactly what Jesus does with you every day. He says, all I want is you. All of you. I want all of you. And he wants you to say to him, all I want is you. You are enough. He doesn't say you can't have a husband or a wife on earth. He doesn't tell you you can't love your children. But he wants you to give him your all and your best. How what a privilege it is to have that opportunity. To have God who owns everything. Who created the universe to literally say to Mark O'Donnell. You can have me if you want me. I'm all yours. That's, you talk about a privilege. How unbelievable would it be to say... Appreciate the offer, God. I got other plans. That seem almost ridiculous when you really just say it. But if we're not careful, we can end up that way. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Again, it brings us to that real simple truth. We see little G God there, and we see big G God. Let me tell you something. The world knows of little G gods all over the place, but there's only one big G God, and that is the God that created the universe. He is all in all, and He is our God, and our Savior, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. See, more than one God is too many. Matthew 6.24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Christ is not content being one of the guys. You must leave all and follow him. The Bible says of Levi or Matthew, And he left all, rose up, and followed him. He left all, rose up, and followed him. Question, will you leave all? Will you rise up? Will you follow him? So you you can't bargain with God. You can't add Christ to your list of gods. Finally, you can't set your own course and follow Christ at the same time. You can't do that. I was on a singles outing years and years ago. Not when I was the singles leader. I was just one of the singles. It was probably at least 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Well, maybe it's a little longer than that. A lot longer than that. But nonetheless, I still remember being a single. And I remember being out on this activity and we were headed to an ice skating ring. I've told the story before. We're headed to an ice skating ring there in Kent. You know, Kent... Uh, at the University of Kent, they have their own ice skating rink. Well, they've had that for years and years and years now. We were in a big caravan. We were all, not a caravan of vehicle, but we were in a caravan, you know, like following one another. Just literally, like, I don't know, I think there was at least eight cars, ten cars, and following everybody up here to this place. And so, I was with a particular fella, and he said, oh, I know exactly where that place is. And so, our teacher told us, he said, okay, you know where it's at? Yeah, I know where it's at. He said, all right, you guys lead the way. 
So my friend and I, we got out front and everybody's following us. We're driving up there to Kent. We're going back through there. And I don't know if you've ever been to this particular rink, but for me, it's a little confusing how to get there. At least I find it confusing. You may not at all, but we're back there driving around and he's like, oh yeah, I know it's right around here. Yeah, it's right around here. You got to remember there's 10 cars behind us. He's pulling in here and he's like, oh man, I think I passed it. So he's pulling in this particular parking lot and he's pulling in, backing up and turning around. And everybody's pulling in, turn, backing up, turning around. And we're going here. And then, so then he drives up this way. And the guy's like, hey, you know where you're going, right? And he goes, yeah, I missed the turn. I missed the turn. As he passes by with the window down, we're driving along. Of course, we're going down a ways a little further. And all of a sudden he says, man, I'm telling you, I just, this doesn't look familiar to me. I'm like, are you kidding me, man? There's 10 cars following us. He's like, I'm going to have to turn around again. So he pulls in another parking lot. He turns around and everybody has to pull in the parking lot, turn around. The guy's, what are you doing? He goes, I got it. I got it. We're driving about five, ten more minutes looking for this place. And finally, finally, this guy pulls up and, you know, beep, 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 stops us, jumps out of his car, the, the leader. He pulls, he runs around to the, has the window get, put your window down. He says, listen, what are you doing? You said you knew where you were going. What's going on? He goes, I, 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 I don't know. I can't find it. My friend was sure he could find it, positive he could find it, but never did. He never found the place. Now, we did finally run into it, I think, accidentally. We probably drove past it three times on the wrong side, of, you know, the back side or something. But one way or another, we missed it all those times. And everybody was following us and nobody ever got there until finally the leader said, I'll find it. He found it. In this life, there are many who believe they can chart their own course, plan their own trip, find their own way. But you know what? That doesn't lead anywhere good at all. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. It's funny how certain memories are like just etched in your mind, aren't they? They were that traumatic. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. The Bible says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Do you know that just two chapters later, in chapter 16, verse 25, the Lord would repeat that particular statement. And he would just simply say, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The exact same words with the exception of one. Now, twice in a row, he states this statement, makes this statement. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The Bible tells us that we're going to come to the end of our life and we're going to realize, if we're not careful, that we have simply wandered endlessly and aimlessly. All along, believing without a shadow of a doubt that we were on the right course. Do you know that you can be sincerely deceived? I mean, you can be confident and you can be sure 
But that doesn't make you right. And it doesn't make me right. God help us to be honest enough to admit that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. That we need Him to chart our course, to plan our way. And you know, we have to be honest with ourselves and realize that we cannot safely get to where we want to go and satisfactorily end up on the other side without Jesus Christ. Where does God reveal His game plan for our lives? I mean, where do we go to find out how to live our lives, how to raise our families, how to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we, how do, we do that? Where, I mean, where do we go for all of that? We go to the Word of God. That's why you're seated here today. That's why you took time out of your busy schedule. That's why you got in your car this morning after taking a bath or shower, I hope. And came to Community Baptist Temple. Why? So that you could learn about Him. And His design. And His way for your life. This is more than a book that we hold in our hand. This right here is the mind of Christ Himself. According to the book of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and verse 14, this is none other than God Himself in writing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. You and I can't disregard its authority in our life without forfeiting its influence. And when we forfeit its influence, we forfeit its blessing. That's all there is to it. Listen, you and I, none of us, we cannot afford to set our own course because we cannot set our own course and follow Jesus Christ at the same time. It cannot be done. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16 as we prepare to close. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 24, we read, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There in verse 24, we see the requirement. He simply says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We must deny self. We must take up our cross and we must follow him. That is a requirement. We see in verse 25, the reminder. He says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. He says, don't ever forget. If you save your life, you're going to lose it in the end. If you'll lose it for my sake, you'll find life. Not only eternal, but life more abundant in this life in which you live. But then we see his reasoning here. Notice in verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I mean, what point will it serve? 
What purpose does it serve to own everything and to have everything that you ever dreamed and desired in this life only to perish at the end of it all? To spend an eternity in hell? Or as a believer, to spend an eternity without a reward to cast at the feet of your Savior who loved you and died for you and paid for your sin on an old rugged cross? The Bible says of Matthew or Levi that when Jesus said, follow me, he left all. He rose up and followed him. Will you leave all? Will you rise up? Will you follow him? You can't bargain with God. You can't add Christ to a list of God's. You can't set your own course and still follow Christ at the same time. It does not work. Matthew didn't try to bargain with God that day. He didn't just simply add God, a Christ to a, a, a list of gods that he had on his mantle that afternoon. He didn't try to follow both his own course and Christ for his life. No, he simply, the Bible says, left all, rose up, and followed him. Will you leave all, rise up and follow Him? If you're lost today, will you say, I don't need my sin and I don't want my life. I want Jesus. I'm coming to you, Lord Jesus. You're the only way, the only truth, the only life. You're the only one that can forgive my sin and save my soul and give me a home in heaven and come live in my life and give me life more abundant. I yield myself, give myself... Surrender myself to you. Here I am, Lord. Oh, forgive me. Save me. If you're a child of God today already, but you've taken back a piece of His real estate, this being His real estate, this being His real estate, this being His real estate, you've taken a piece of it for yourself when He said He bought it with a price and that you're His possession... Will you simply say, Lord, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Father, we come to You.